Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> I am really excited for this uh, kind of new season of, of small groups and studies kicking off as it's corresponding with the new season of fall and this new season we're going through in Acts, uh, our series in Acts. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. It's not an intimidating chapter to preach at all, is it? Or to study. There's, Acts chapter 2 is it's pretty special. I'm actually really thankful for the privilege of getting to cover this chapter today, but I will just uh, give you the caveat that we're going really for more of a big picture overview of where this story fits in the context and, and how maybe are some ways that it applies to us, but we're not going to have time to go into all the rabbit holes of this chapter, and I don't know where God is going to lead Mike to share from next week specifically, uh, but if you are really want to really want to dive into all of those rabbit holes, then that Bible study in Acts uh, that really does you know, take some more time, dedicated time to, to do to explore all those different paths, um, that might be for you. So if you're left really wanting to know, oh, but what about that one word or what about this one thing, you know, that's, uh, that's a good opportunity for you to seek that in community with others. But before we get into chapter 2, which we will, I promise, today, I, I do want to point out something in chapter 1 that we didn't really talk about last week. There's a thread that we can chase that sets us up for chapter 2, but it begins in chapter 1. And that thread, I would say it's a person, a character, and it's who the, really the main central figure of the whole book of Acts is about. Who is it? Who's the central character of the book of Acts. I know Mike knows. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's right. Or as they would have known it in Hebrew, those who grew up uh, uh, with Hebrew and knowing Old Testament scripture, Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh. The Holy Spirit. The Greek would be um, agionumatos. Numa being, you know, numa, spirit, ruach being the Hebrew equivalent. Very um, not exactly the same, but very uh, similar con concepts in Hebrew and Greek. And in the Hebrew understanding of this, this Ruach HaKodesh, the HaKodesh being the specifically the Holy, the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, it's the personal energizing presence of God himself, not in bodily form, but nonetheless fully interactive with the world. Indeed, this is the same spirit who was hovering over the face of the primordial abyss on the first day of creation. The same spirit that has been at work all throughout the story of the Bible, from creation to Acts and into today. That said, chapter 2 does of Acts marks a significant shift, or at least a progression, a movement, an intensification of the disciples' own personal relationship to the Holy Spirit and the manner in which they are moved and empowered by the Holy Spirit, this Ruach HaKodesh. Chapter 1 sets us up, again, for that shift. Look at those first two verses again in Acts. Chapter uh, 1, verse 1 says, The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
So here's Luke describing Jesus' work and teachings all the way up until the point where he was ascended into heaven as being led or provided by the Holy Spirit. Jesus being the physical agent acting according to the direction of the Spirit. In fact, this relationship to the Holy Spirit is how the Gospels describe Jesus' entire adult ministry. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21, says this, Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, (laughs) in other words, adopted son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So after John, Johanan, the Immerser, the Baptist, dunked Jesus in the Jordan River, what happened next After, after his baptism? What happened next? Immediately after. Where did Jesus go? To the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had descended on him like a dove at the baptism. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's still on him. It's still, he's now full. It's not just on him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and when they had finished he was hungry and of course if you know the story hopefully you do he passes the test he proves the validity of this spiritual experience he stands up to the adversary and prevails against him which would only be possible if it were through the power of God of Yahweh himself and his spirit So this isn't just some powerful spirit. This is the Holy Spirit on Jesus. Now listen how Luke describes what happens next after Jesus prevails against the devil. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Again, how many times can he reiterate this? And news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, oh, it's like, oh, in case you didn't get it, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's reading this passage immediately after those pivotal series of events, the baptism, the temptation, full of the Spirit, and now claiming himself to be a direct fulfillment of those promises that he was reading. From the very beginning, Jesus' ministry 
And indeed, his very movements, even from one village or city to the next, are all through the express and personal direction of Ruach HaKodesh, including the very final orders that he gives to his disciples, which is what? What's the last order that he gave to his disciples? Going back to Matthew. After that. Oh, yes, it wasn't in Matthew, I'm sorry. In Luke, I, I believe he records it. After he told them to go and make disciples, he told them to first wait. Wait. Wait for what? And then in, in Acts chapter 1, it says it again. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they were to wait for this to happen. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy, immersed, filled with the Holy Spirit, just as they had seen happen to Jesus. And they had had even glimpsed a taste of themselves. So in other words, just like Jesus was baptized, both by water and Spirit, so will the disciples be. And the implication is that they will be empowered specifically for the purposes of carrying out that mission of going and making disciples. Those specific orders, that was the mission that they received. And this is how they're going to gear up for it. So I have to ask myself at this point, I'm just wondering if they had any expectations or ideas as to what would that look like to be baptized in the Spirit. What's that going to look like for them? They've seen how Jesus lived. They know (laughs) Jesus told Nicodemus, he compared it to being born again. He said, if you've been born of water, you must also be born of the Spirit. And that's why baptism is a picture of that. But if being truly born of the Spirit is anything like being born, physically born of water, then being born of Spirit might be a rather terrifying experience. Being born physically into this world is kind of horrifying. We're naked and screaming and we left this world of perfect warmth and and comfort into this world of overwhelming stimuli and challenges that we have to overcome just to survive. And I really wouldn't want to have to go back to that stage of life again, to be honest with you. To get an idea of what, if any expectations the disciples might have had as to what this baptism of the Spirit might look like, We can look at what Old Testament teachings on the Holy Spirit that they certainly would have been familiar with. If it were me, my imagination would be going wild. You know, it could be almost unnoticeable when it happens, or no, I think we're really going to know when it happens. You know, I can just imagine the the conversations that were happening. (laughs) They knew when it happened. (laughs) But it would be impossible to try to cover everything the Old Testament teaches about the Spirit and and the Holy Spirit in one message, of course, but I do want to give you a quick overview of a few key passages from the Old Testament that might help to illuminate or at least provide some foundational understanding of what the disciples understood about the Spirit. And I do want us to try to, I know this, this passage, even the day of Pentecost, that name Pentecost and the Spirit, there is a lot of baggage that comes with the um, church history ever since then. You know, what's happened between now and then has come with a lot of baggage, and I want us to try to set that aside just for today, just for this next half hour or so, to try to picture what the disciples would have understood about it. 
um, just for today, to try to understand this story in their context. How this, yeah, so we're going to look at first how the, the concept of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and how, who this Spirit is, because it is a person and not a thing, but in relation to the other two persons of the Godhead and how this Holy Spirit interacts with the rest of the world. So we're really going to focus in on this Spirit. Now, again, this, the word itself of Ruach, Spirit, means breath or wind, literally, and it's often translated uh, as breath or wind if it's not translated as spirit. It's the same root word as um, aroma, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It is sometimes translated as, as wind or breath. Um, and that root, it means to smell or to be relieved or to be of a wide, spacious area. So that, that sense of... <sighs> That's even, it's a lit, um, onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it, what it means. Breath. It takes a lot of breath to say that word. <laughs> it's, it's awkward to say because it takes a lot of breath. Same root will refer to incense and burnt offerings. Um, now, holy, the hakodesh part of it, that is used to distinguish from other spiritual beings and other you know, types of spirits. And it refers to God's, God's spirit being uh, one and uh, or other than other spirits and pure though the Bible may refer to him as God's spirit or simply the spirit. And we know kind of like when we, there are many gods referred to in the Bible, but there is one God who is Yahweh who is above all other gods and not like any other gods. There are many spirits in the Bible, but only one holy spirit of the creator God. And it's important to note, not all appearances of that word ruach necessarily refer to the holy spirit. But understanding what that word ruach means and meant to them is still helpful in understanding what the Holy Spirit means. Just like understanding what a lion is is helpful in understanding what Lion King is. <laughs> now, providentially, the fact that this is associated with aroma, that concept of aroma, I think is a helpful analogy to the concept of the Holy Spirit. Think about aroma being this intangible and yet undeniable presence. It's, at times, inescapable. If you have kids, you know this. If you've ever been sprayed by a skunk, you know this. You know what it's like to be unable to flee from the presence of something. You can't flee from the presence of skunk smell. <laughs> there are things we can do to try to get away from it, but that's what it's like to try to run away from God, is like trying to run away from aroma that's just, you can't run away from it. It's invisible, and yet it can dramatically alter the mood of any given situation or room. Aromas can trigger vivid memories that were otherwise lying dormant, and aromas are even crucial to the full experience of tasting food. And so it's just this intangible, invisible thing, and yet it impacts our life in so many ways. And in that way, I think aroma is a cool analogy. Breath, again, necessary to the experience of aroma is the action of breathing and specifically drawing air in through the, the nostrils specifically, not the mouth. So it's unsurprising then that breath is a core concept in ruach and in um, like, and it's like aroma, it's just an analogy, but that same 
word in the ESV is, is translated spirit 34 times as breath. And in these cases, the breath is generally used to refer to the life force of the, the people, or the animals uh, breathing that life because you need breath for life. So it's a logical association. Creatures must breathe in order to live. Breath is the sustaining movement of an intangible, invisible presence of air moving in and out of your lungs, without which nothing on earth could live. And this is true of the Holy Spirit. So in this sense, the word spirit, regarding any living beings in some contexts can be also understood to mean something along the lines of that being's life force or the intangible but essential quality of life in that being. Furthermore, we who are the created beings have none to thank but our creator for the gift of this quality. Just as a reminder, <laughs> um, that back in Genesis 2-7, Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So it is only by God that we have life. At times, breath, or even breeze, it's a bit too gentle of a word or a concept to describe the Holy Spirit. It's not forceful enough of a translation to fit the context. It doesn't always refer to a spirit or a life force either when we're talking about that word ruach. Ruach is translated 114 times into the ESV as wind or winds. So this is necessarily a stronger force of air than, than breath or breeze. One of my favorite passages that has this word ruach in it comes in Exodus chapter 15, where the people of Israel are praising God in song after he just brought them safely on dry land through the Red Sea, delivering them from the pursuing Egyptian army. In verses 8 and, and verses 10, so I can skip verse 9, but uh, in Exodus chapter 15, it says, At the blast of your nostrils, which is the ruach of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. It's colorful, poetic phrasing. It's painting this picture of God just with, the, with his breath separating the waters. It incorporates multiple concepts of what ruach is in one image. So I just think that's cool. And again, we have a helpful analogy for understanding the nature of God's spirit in the concept of wind. It's a powerful force. It can uproot trees and level buildings. It can toss around enormous waves of water and carry storms across hundreds of miles. It can propel a ship filled with people across the ocean. It can distribute pollen and seeds across to propagate the earth. The earth relies on the wind to do all of these things. Anyone who's ever started a fire and tried to do so without, you know, lighter fluid and, and matches knows how handy it is to have some forceful lungs or something else to be forcing some air into that flame to get it started. It can mean the difference between a weak little pile of sparks and a powerful, all-consuming flame. 
I just, this was just a little, little tiny rabbit hole to give you a little bit of background on, on the Spirit and who He is, a little bit about the nature of the Holy Spirit and what He does. He does a lot from creation to wisdom and divination and craftsmanship and prophecy and visions and leadership and guidance. The Bible describes the Spirit as being at work from the very beginning. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to make... <laughs> And I might really embarrass myself here. I'm going to try to do a sound effect, and I want you to tell me what... I'm going to try to do the, the sound of a word, because this word is a kind of... It makes a sound, and I want you to guess what this sound is. Okay. Ready? Like a car? Okay. How about... Uh, helicopter. Okay. That's close. Yes, thank you. Helicopter. What does the helicopter do? It flies. Oh, I don't have my helicopter pilot here with me. I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> What's, what makes a helicopter special, Jenna? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, I hope Ben's not watching. <laughs> ben makes them special. Oh, there you are. I just, you're right in front of me. You blend it in. Ben, what makes helicopters special? Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> some planes can be stealthy, too. It creates its own wind, which, which lets it do something that planes couldn't do for a long time, which is hover in one place. And there are creatures who can hover in one place right, while flying. Not many of them. Can you think of any? Hummingbird. That's, that was the first one I was trying to do. <laughs> You thought of it. Okay, so that's kind of the, the sound of, of hovering, right? Whether it's a helicopter or a hummingbird, to hover, you have to make your own wind, and that creates that kind of sound. And the reason I am going through all this is because this word is in Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit is present and involved in creation and is introduced as hovering over the waters. I think I have this. Yeah. So in Genesis 1 2, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was over the surface of the waters, fluttering. So if you, didn't, if you don't know about helicopters, what would, you, what would you think of as hovering? The only thing I could think of would be a bird, right, of some kind, hovering, fluttering. It's like the breath of God is hovering at a whisper just before carrying the voice, the words of the Creator, which then act in accordance to His will to bring it forth into existence, beginning with light itself. All of creation then proceeds from the breath of God as He speaks His will. That hovering then, imagine that being connected to the dove coming down hovering over him and going with him, and that imagery of the, the wings and fluttering breath, it's all connected. But Genesis provides this picture of God's spirit being the original, present, and active force in the process of creation, full of energy, creating his own wind of force and change to enact his will. Verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26 all begin with, Then God said. 
to open the explanation for then the corresponding day of creation. Everything happened according to what was carried up on the breath of God, his words. And this pattern itself invokes an implication of the ruach being involved at every step of the way. You can consider some of these other passages. Job 26, 13, by his breath, the heavens are made beautiful. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Psalm 104, 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created. You renew the face of the ground. God's spirit is involved in the active, ongoing renewal and creation of life. And as we investigate further, we'll see that this goes beyond these large-scale creative works, or it goes deeper. We also see cases of God's Spirit selectively gifting or even overtaking various individuals throughout the Old Testament. You can see this throughout um, Joshua, the character of Joshua in Numbers, um, Othniel and Judges and Gideon and Samson and Saul, And then prophecies and even the writing of Scripture itself is all attributed to the intervention and interaction of God's Spirit with the human agents involved. Notice, what does does the word inspiration or inspired mean? Anyone? It means, in in a biblical context, when we're looking at New Testament Scripture, when it says that all Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. It means it comes from His Spirit. So here's a few quick examples of um, God intervening in somewhat unique ways. Uh, one in Genesis 41:38 is the reference. But Pharaoh acknowledges the Spirit of God in Joseph when he's able to discern the meaning of his dreams. He attributes that wisdom to the divine spirit in him, even though he may not have understood exactly what that was. He says this, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? Like, who el- where else are we going to find someone like this in whom is such a divine spirit? He's recognizing the spirit of God is on this man, in this man. So even from an outsider, it was recognized. We see it with um, even craftsmanship of the, the tabernacle in Exodus 31, 1 through 5. This is one of my favorites because it just shows that God values craftsmanship and quality of work so much that he will intervene to make sure that it is done in a way that is up to his standards. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, discernment, and knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood in order for him to work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Even for the sake of beauty, the Spirit will empower us to create things with craftsmanship. The Spirit is very active in prophecy. This is probably the most well-known and the bulk of what we see um, in the Old Testament is from passages like in 1 Samuel uh, 
Chapter 10, the Spirit of Yahweh comes again powerfully upon Saul, and he prophesies um, in 2 Kings, Elisha asks for a portion of Elijah's spirit, which is a um, recognition, then it results in recognition of God's presence on him when he parts the Red or the, the Jordan River. And then in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel has a vision of God's glory, which is described in brightness and fire and a rainbow, actually. And the Spirit then lifts him up and he hears this loud, rumbling sound. No, I'm just dumping all this on you, but it's because all of this is going to sound really familiar when we get to Acts chapter 2. Um, and then, perhaps, I don't want to leave this one out, most importantly, we see God's Holy Spirit involved in visions and manifestations of, of God's presence, as just signs of God's presence. Um, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, do you have that one up there? That one's a cool one, where Isaiah sees Yahweh in a vision where his robe fills the temple and there are seraphim present. The doorposts shake at the voices of the seraphim and the temple is filled with smoke. It's just, the, the imagery is so cool and powerful. Um, with Moses, back in uh, Numbers, I think I have Numbers up at 1125, that's where God takes some of the spirit that is on Moses and places it on the 75 elders, and they prophesy. So in that, it's actually kind of a large-scale event, but it was still isolated. It happened that one time, and it didn't really happen as a pattern. It just happened as an isolated event. And then you have throughout, before they had kings, you had various judges being filled or empowered by the Spirit of Yahweh to deliver Israel. David is anointed, um, when Samuel anoints David in, in 1 Samuel 16, 3, the Spirit of Yahweh comes powerfully on David as a confirmation of that anointing. <laughs> Samuel anointed him with oil, but God anointed him with the Spirit. <laughs> it's the same as a baptism, conceptually. And then finally... Uh, I'll skip through some of these for the sake of time. I have, there's just so many, and I, I chose just a handful out of the hundreds. They're, just, they're all just so cool. But we get to Isaiah, passages like Isaiah 44.3, where God promises to pour out his spirit on the descendants of Israel. And then Joel, I'm going to read Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, is a pivotal prophecy. God promises to pour out his spirit on all people, again, where the sons and daughters would prophesy, and then the spirit would be given to both the young and the old. And this is the passage that is then directly quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2. It says, Afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit. All right, so I know we just spent a long time on the Old Testament. Moving to the New Testament, I doubt, and my, back to my question of what were they expecting? You know, I think their heads would have been going to all of those passages, thinking what did the Holy Spirit do to people in the past? What's going to happen to us? But I doubt anyone really could have imagined exactly what was going to happen next. Um, but that concept of the Spirit and the Spirit's power and how powerful the Spirit is would not have been 
foreign to anyone familiar with the Old Testament. And again, the disciples have been dabbling, so to speak, with the, through their time that they've spent with Jesus in what that looks like, in observing and experiencing little tastes of it for themselves. So, yeah, I think to some extent they knew what to expect, and to that end they knew what to trust and what to expect was from Yahweh. They would be able to recognize it. And they recognized, as we'll read here, that the, the prophecy of Joel is coming to fruition in and among them. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, which for them is manifested in, through tongues of fire and the ability to speak in different languages. And this event marks the birth of the church. It marks the beginning of the Spirit's active and indwelling presence in the followers of Christ. It signifies not just empowerment for service, like we see happening in the Old Testament, but also marking the start of a new covenant where God's presence would be with his people continually. It's a continuation of the narrative of Ruach HaKodesh from the Old Testament, setting the stage for its New Testament fulfillment and showcasing God's continuous involvement and commitment to humanity through his Spirit. All right, so let's at least read through Acts chapter 2 together. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were astounded and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? They're all from the same place. How is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others, mocking, were saying, they're full of new wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will put wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, pointing an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For, God, for, for David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Turn around, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly bore witness and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this crooked generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Began selling their property and possessions, were dividing them up with all as anyone might have need, daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow, what an action packed and awesome chapter! 
Remember, Jesus' last supper with his disciples was a Passover meal. Passover was a yearly event. It would draw a crowd of faithful Jews to Jerusalem, which was just perfect timing for them to have been a witness to his execution and his resurrection. And now 50 days later is something, another big festival called Pentecost. Pent being, uh, fifth, means 50th. So it's the 50th day after the Sabbath of Passover. So again, this is, would bring an influx of visitors to the city from all over the world. These are two pretty big festivals in Jerusalem, less than two months apart. So it wouldn't really be unusual to have people staying. It's kind of like that awkward time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where if you have to travel a really long way, then maybe you might just stay the whole time, even through New Year, right? So we think of the holiday season. This was sort of a festival season for Jerusalem. You can just imagine a wide variety of people around, whether they were permanent citizens of the, or uh, residents of the city or in town for the festivities. What better opportunity to get a message out than when you have all this tourism? What better soil in which to plant the seeds of the gospel where it will be spread throughout the world as they disperse again from Jerusalem and return to their homes? So they're not doing that yet, are they? They're they're actually not going to go anywhere until they're forced to, as we'll see, but we don't want to get too far ahead. Again, my, my main goal for today is to present this story in its broader context. There's probably things that you want to you know, explore more. What I want to take a moment to reflect on the significance of this event for us today is what I um, just want to spend a few more moments doing. Because what happened to the apostles was unique and specific to them and their situation but it's also perfectly relevant to us. The apostles had a unique calling that nobody else in history does. Again, no one ever has to choose that 12th apostle again. They were the starter pack of seeds from which sprung the whole forest under, under the nurturing care, of course, of the Father and through the power of the, the Spirit and following the model of, of Christ. So the exact, exact details of what happened whether it was on the day of Pentecost or every day after that, were as unique as the situation they were in. So that's what's part of what makes the Spirit so exciting, but also so difficult to study. It's like the wind. He's always on the move and equipping and adapting people for the lives into which he calls them, which is amazing. That said, again, this event was consistent with thousands of years of already established patterns of God's So they were able to discern certain things like the the wind and the fire, the sound like a wind from heaven, describing it as filling the house where the disciples were sitting. Even the the flaming tongues that sit and rest on the disciples. It's reminiscent of the description of what happens during the dedication of of Solomon's temple. The cloud filling the house of Yahweh, and the priests couldn't even perform their services because of it. Now we're having it, the presence of God empowering the humans to do their service because of it. And the fire arriving in the form of these, sh- these tongues is just foreshadowing what they're about to do according to the power of the Spirit. And it's a powerful image of their calling as the first emissaries, the first heirs of Christ to the mission of proclaiming his message in every tongue and every language so that everyone can know God. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other languages as the Spirit enables them, because that's what Jesus told them to do. And we can rest assured that whatever Jesus tells us to do, wherever God leads us, he will also provide for us and equip us to do those things. 
And what happened to the disciples in Acts chapter 2 is really what happened to the whole church. This is our origin story. It tells us that God is here with us. The wait is over. We see it in the, the physical manifestations. Like in both Testaments, the presence of God often comes with these physical manifestations. Uh, and the Old Testament frequently depicts it with this cloud or the glory filling a particular space. In Acts chapter 2, it's this violent wind and these tongues of fire. And in either case, there's just no doubt something unusual is happening here. There's something supernatural. There's, oh, this can only really be happening because of God's intervention. Which validates that. And then in the Old Testament, there's a comparison here. You know, God's presence is often visiting a particular place or time, like the tabernacle, which then traveled with them until they were able to build the temple, which stayed put, or an individual, like when it came upon Saul or the prophets for a time. In Acts chapter 2, again, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within the believers, but like with Jesus, when the dove came and descended on Jesus, it went with him. With the disciples, the, the Spirit came and never left. It's a permanent, intimate indwelling. And unlike in the Old Testament, where God's manifested presence also often resulted in limited access, <laughs> people couldn't go into the, the Holy of Holies of the temple because God's presence was too strong there. Moses couldn't even get into the tabernacle at first. In Acts, this manifestation... <laughs> democratizes, if you will, or decentralizes God's presence, making it accessible to all believers, regardless of their, their status or their gender, their political status, their, their age, as long as, you know, age of, we're not getting into the age of uh, accountability, but the Spirit gives them purpose. In the, the Old Testament, the manifestations often... Um, confirmed God's presence or sanctified a particular place or empowered an individual for a particular task. So again, David being anointed for the kingship. There's empowerment for, for witnessing, but there's also the broader purpose of establishing the, the new covenant here in Acts, which is why it's this particular manifestation of the Spirit is so, it's like this big explosion, right? Where, and then there's some, some ripple effects. The Spirit is being given to all believers as a helper and a guide here. And Peter explains it by referencing Joel's prophecy, implying that the outpouring that they're witnessing here is the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out His Spirit on those who believe in Him. So in essence, the manifestations of God's presence in both Testaments share common elements, like the physical signs. The, um, but the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 holds unique significance. that It ushers in this new era of the Spirit's relationship with believers. This, it's the same Spirit in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament, the same God. However, Christ, what Christ allowed or unlocked, He brought this shift by making the indwelling of the Spirit available to all who follow Him, as opposed to just those rare and select few, even among God's people in the Old Testament. Even when not acting in these dramatic and visible and miraculous ways, the Spirit is described still, even in the boring, monotonous days, as the unifying and sanctifying power in the church that draws people to God 
and provides a common exponential or experiential factor across all languages and cultures. We are all unified by the Spirit of God. Salvation in Christ is possible through the Spirit. The Spirit convicts us and sustains us and guides us and forms us. He is the seal of our inheritance and he's the proof of the hope that we have in God. As Christians in this age of bountiful access to God's Spirit, we ought to cherish this gift and pray for his guidance, follow his leading, abide in his comfort, and dwell as a unified body in his presence. I want to read to close us out some lyrics to a song that I just heard yesterday as I was writing this, and it's really more of a spoken word or poetic kind of finale to a live album by Gungor. Um, it's called Creation Liturgy is the, is the album. But these words just really struck me with their beauty and their relevance uh, to, this, to this message. It's something we can say and, and pray and, and trust ever since that day that disciples first received him on Pentecost. The song or poem is called He Is Here. He's right here in this room. In your heart, he is near, nearer than breath, heartbeat, nearer than you are to you, closer than second chance or next opportunity, closer than tonight or yesterday. He is real, more real than touch, see, hear, smell, or taste, more real than reality. He is our reality, more real than joy, pain, sorrow, or the love of being in love. He is present like space, wind, time, silence, night. He is waiting, like creation, like words on the tip of tongue, like songs that have yet to be sung. He is beauty and oranges, blues, every hue, every shade, sunset and sunrise whisper his name. He is holy, cannot be touched, explained, like sweet seconds of prayer, like grandmother on knees, wood floor bare. He is old hymns, the extending of limbs, stretch across trees, stripes to heal disease, he is Son, distinctly three, distinctly three, the only one, the only wise, the only resurrector of lives. He is King, and no earthly throne can house him. No amount of elegant words can espouse him. He is moment and voice, power of choice in word and deed, in fruit and seed, nailed hands, nailed feet, innocent wounds that bleed. He is believe. He is all. He is call and purpose. Everything we can sacrifice, he's worth it and more, much more. Our good deeds are mere pennies. We'll never even the score. He is bold and wow. He is who, what, when, why, how. He's the one who puts on the show. He's the one who we come to see. He is soul's cry and sinner's bleed. He is the epitome that no one can light a candle to or come within a 300 feet pole of. He is above. He is a father's love, maker of ways of earth and wind, ancient of days, has no fear. Have no fear. Have no fear. Our God is here. Do you believe that today? I do. What better way to respond to God's presence than to sing his praise. Let's 